This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have a fellow New Yorker, Ryan, Body Art Training Studio, has been friends for a long time, watched your growth and continued success. So welcome, finally, to Halo Talks. I got to tell you, man, it is an honor to be on here. I have listened to so many Halo Talks, and um, I'm getting goosebumps right now just listening to you do that intro. I've heard you do the intro with that, you know, that dun 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go, man. There you go. Yeah, I, we got, we got our own little jingle, bro. I got a jingle now, you know, like. You, I know, uh, man. You know, so the brand, I'm, get away, awareness, and then I got a jingle associated. <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, honestly, I've listened to so many Halo Talks and found them so informational and educational. And, you know, everybody from Jeff Schneider to Hillis Lake to uh, Dan Lee and uh, nice. Colin Gordon, all these people are just super luminaries. And you, my friend, are like, you know, the kingpin. So it's an honor to talk to you today. Awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, jump into it. And why don't you give your personal background and then we'll talk about the Broadway ecosystem and how that affects the fitness industry, uh, especially in New York City. So fire away. Yeah. Um, my background actually was a professional dancer. I did a lot of film and television. I worked with Beyonce and Black Eyed Peas. I did a couple of movies, the Step Up 3D and as a dancer, I started to realize the toll that this profession was taking on my knees, on my hips, on my back. Um, you know, if you lift <laughs> uh, dancers over your head, I mean, this is like a consecutive uh, deadlift, a consecutive bench press. And right. so you do this, you know, eight, 10 times a week and it, it starts to wear on your joints. And so I started to really look into preventative measures that I could take to uh, mitigate the collateral damage that dancing was doing to my body. And this is what was the genesis or the catalyst for my becoming involved in body art. And I'm so passionate about helping people, whether they're dancers, martial artists, whether they're spinners, whether they're yogis, I really am passionate about helping people continue to do the things that they love to do and at the same time prevent injury and also reduce pain because these are the number one reasons why people are not able to do the things they love to do. Sure. So you found Body Art, Body Art found you. Um, you know, I've been to a couple of your investor presentations. Uh, I know plenty of people that, you know, swear by it as, you know, a religion, if you will. Um, so talk about the genesis of that. And I find that any, anything that spawns out of a personal frustration usually creates a company versus somebody like, hey, there's this cool stuff going on in the fitness industry. Let me kind of shish kebab some, you know, together, some kind of cycling and dance and kettlebells and so on and so forth. It's got to have like a unique DNA to it. So talk to us about Bob. Yeah, I'm so glad that you just used the word DNA. This is something that I think is so intrinsic to uh, having a mission and having a purpose. You have to really understand the DNA of what you're doing and the specificity with which we approach movement in the body art world is very much informed by understanding a principle of balance. And body art comes from understanding that we have Western science which is rooted in physical therapy, biomechanics, 
anatomy and kinesiology and many resources with regard to data and research-driven studies. On the other hand, you've got literally thousands of years of traditional Eastern philosophy and Eastern medicine and looking at the, the underlying principle, which is balance. And how do you help people create balance and understanding that if you don't create balance in the system, then you will inevitably have injuries. You will inevitably have overcompensation. So what we do is taking the Western science of physical therapy and then the Eastern philosophy, understanding the balance between dynamic, passive, uh, really intense contraction, engagement, and then complete and total passive recovery. And this is, this is where body art comes from. It's, a, it's an understanding of Western science and then Eastern philosophy to help bridge that gap. Got it. So when you bring on trainers, you know, how in depth do they need to get into the Scientology of, of the, you know, of, of this, if you will. So, you know, I definitely seek out instructors that have a baseline knowledge with regard to anatomy, kinesiology, and biomechanics. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of the trainers are actual physical therapists. In fact, we have a great network of physical therapists who work in a clinical capacity around the country. And we work synergistically with these, um, with these medical professionals. The interesting thing is that what we do is primarily preemptive and it's, uh, in, it's designed to prevent injuries but in injury, injuries are inevitable. And when you do have an injury, then, you know, then you need to work one-on-one -on -one with a, prof, you know, professional physical therapist and it's, it's tailored bespoke to your needs. So it's kind of like, um, a, a dance, you know, you've got the prevention and then you've got the post trauma rehab. And so again, we work really well in both capacities. Is there, is any of this covered or do you think it's going to be covered soon by, you know, ins health insurance um, groups where they're going to say, Hey, a body art class, like, we'll pay for that because you getting injured is going to cost us, you know, 50 times what it costs for us to pay for a class. Yeah. We've already had a number of collaborations with, uh, academic institutions, whether it's Columbia University Medical Center. Uh, right now, we're working in conjunction with UCLA, which is a stress lab, looking at the effects of stress on the system. And so body art as a tool, which allows you to mitigate things like high levels of stress, high blood pressure, definitely could be uh, integrated into a wellness or a well-being, an approach to well-being that definitely would have significant benefit with regard to workers' compensation and insurance premiums. I think that's, I think that's definitely something on the horizon. So, so during the pandemic, you've, you've been doing some curated content uh, for some pretty uh, big brand name corporations. So talk a little bit about how that evolved, you know, how you feel about doing things virtually and, you know, obviously there, there's a, a vibe that you get inside of a body art class, which is somewhat cathartic and somewhat energizing and also 
spiritual? Like, so how do you feel about the virtual, you know, presentation of that? And some of the groups that keep coming back to you now and saying, Hey, I need some more modules and, and being almost like in the back end of production uh, versus kind of, you know, being the, the performer, if you will, live. Yeah. The in-person experience is always going to be intrinsically part of our, <laughs> our human beingness. Right. And that's, Agreed. that's never going to go away. And the virtual, um, I, you know, it's, it's funny because in the health and fitness world, we always talk about supplements. I actually was just doing a podcast two days ago. And one of the questions that came up was, you know, with regard to supplements and the thing is supplements and supplemental nutrition by definition is not the core of your experience, right? These are things to enhance. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that I look at digital content. I think that the virtual space can serve as being absolutely wonderful supplemental content. But at the end of the day, you know, I still, we still, you know, we've, we've had this whole new series of classes that we do outside in like 20 degree weather, uh, which is, you know, not unlike, I mean, I know that you play hockey or you, you, you're a goalie. So obviously yeah. you know that, you know, that athleticism is not negated just because the temperatures are colder, you know? And so we found ways to continue to safely offer this real life in-person experience and at the same time offering supplementary uh, digital content. I think, you know, I, I was listening to, um, actually it was a Halo talk a couple of weeks ago and I don't remember who was saying it, but understanding that we have all of these digital tools, whether it's Zoom, whether it's Instagram Live, whether it's platforms behind a paywall, and all of these serve as tools of engagement. And, you know, the, the smart architect or the smart engineer understands that it's not just about having access to the tools. It's about having the wisdom to understand which tool is the right tool for the right moment and the right job. And so I think that, for example, sometimes Zoom is absolutely incredible for certain applications. And then sometimes Zoom just is not the right tool for that particular job. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I'm a big believer that everything related to at home and digital should be supplemental, just like your supplements. Uh, but the, you should not lose that core interconnectivity of actually being part of a community. I mean, look, when I work out at home versus when I work out in, in a class, uh, it's two times better for me, at least. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely pushing harder, you know, in, in a live event. And I want to be part of a participatory event because that's basically yeah. all, all I got left to do. Like I'm not suiting up for any sporting event right now that I know of because I'm, I'm still undrafted in the NFL. So, uh, I've got my fingers crossed for you, man. I appreciate that. I appreciate your, your vibe, man. I feel it. Hey, so talk for a minute about how important Broadway and dance and performers and actors and actresses being in New York City that kind of creates the flywheel and almost like the, 
the feeding pond, if you will, of talent that flows upwards into the fitness industry and boutique classes? Oh man, I cannot overstate the importance of the human capital in this equation. So if you look at the ecosystem or the, the, the landscape, you understand that it's very similar to uh, IT, iOS kind of situation. So if you look at a computer and you say, okay, I, got my, I have my screen, I got my speakers, I have my keyboard, I can have all the bells and whistles with regard to hardware. And if I don't have software to run on the hardware, my hardware is useless. And so there is this synergistic connection between the software, which is the actual instructor, and the hardware, which is the brick and mortar, whether it's the digital platform. I mean, all of this is essentially represents the hardware, but the software is A, the instructors, and B, the customer service experience that people, you know, the UX that people engage with when they come onto your platform or they walk into your studio. And this is something that I talk about all the time with my team. I love that analogy. I love the software analogy. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like you can run, uh, you can, you can have the best hardware in the world, but if you're running shitty software in terms of your customer experience, in terms of your UX, or just in terms of the, the quality of your instructors, I mean, I've seen so many studios that looked amazing on the outside, and yet the internal components in, in, in terms of who was teaching and what was being taught, what modalities, um, you know, were the, you know, they, those were the, the death sentence for those businesses. And with regard to, you know, my world, which my world straddles both of these ecosystems. I came mm -hmm. from the entertainment world and I understand the power of art, music, entertainment, film to grab people's imagination, to grab people's attention. I mean, that's why if you watch a really great movie and then you look at your watch and you say, oh my God, I mean, it's four hours later. How did that happen? And that's because of the art that's because of the ability to, to grab your attention and take you on a journey, right? right. And the realization, and I, I think that sometimes people on the finance side, in terms of conversations that I've had with investors, they, they tend to underestimate the, the, the importance of that aspect of the equation. But again, as I said, going back to this idea, like if you don't have software, <laughs> it doesn't matter. I mean, that's been one of the that's been one of the fundamental things which has been so interesting about watching Peloton's exponential growth is that it seems like from the outside that Peloton understands that their hardware, which is the bike and their ability to stream content, is as important, if not more important or less. I mean, there's an equality there because they also understand that they have to value the content of their instructors, there's, there's, a, there's an equilibrium there. I'll just say that. So they understand that what they're putting on the screen, what they're streaming is as important as all of the bells and whistles and how fancy the screen is. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, I think it's a tough 
regardless of what you say about Facebook and groups and everything else, you know, building a digital community has its constraints as far as I'm concerned. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see, you know, like when Amazon bought um, Whole Foods, you know, yeah. oh, they get into the bricks and mortar business. Like, what are they doing? They'll probably be launching like delivery drones off the top of like Whole Foods at some point. Right. So at some point you need like a land based presence. Um, I wonder if the evolution of fitness, you know, potentially includes Peloton, you know, trying to buy a, maybe they buy SoulCycle. Maybe they understand that, hey, look, our digital presence is great, but I actually want to touch people, you know, in, in a way that's localized and not just relying on, you know, through the screen. So I think it could be interesting. And like I went online the other day, I bought something from Target, you know, and I got it delivered, you know, two hours later from the store, you know. So I think there's going to be a meshing of bricks and mortar and digital that that could be the right equilibrium, as you say, of like, bring the talent to me, but don't just rely on the screen. Like I want more than the screen. We'll see how it evolves. Yeah. I mean, right now, the biggest consideration for most consumers is still safety. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think this is, this is, this can't also, this, this point can't be overlooked, which is there is a shift that's happening. There is a, uh, a paradigm moment here. And yet at the same time, there is a fundamental difference between ordering an inanimate product from Amazon and having it delivered versus the relationship that you cultivate with another human being, whether that's your personal trainer, whether that's your instructor, whether that's your fitness icon, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what we're really talking about here is when you think about product, you're thinking about how many units can I move and how can I maximize the number of units that I'm selling? Mm -hmm. But when you try to use those same metrics and you start to talk about something like relationship, it becomes actually, I think in some ways, counterproductive, right? So if on one hand we have we have an inanimate object, but on the other hand, we're talking about a relationship. Right. If you're trying to talk about how do you scale relationships, that's something that I think needs to be answered by each and every uh, each and every customer or each and every co company. Because I know that for me, the answer is uh, Seth Godin always talks about SVP. Are you familiar with uh, no, oh. sorry. SV, SVA, I think, smallest viable audience. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Seth Godin always says is like, you know, if you're in the business of relationships, you need to find out what is your smallest viable audience to be a, be a successful business, but understand that simply looking to maximize profit margins might in actuality decrease the quality of those relationships. And it goes back to actually what I was talking about before, which is understanding balance. And anytime that you take something to an excessive level, you're going to have drawbacks and you're going to have a dilution of the quality of your product. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, people talk about all these metrics, you know, lifetime value of a customer or like, hey, I went through my 
my data analytics on my 300 member studio and I stop and I, I usually stop them and I say, well, what do they actually say when you talk to them? Like forget about like what this software tells you your analytics are. Like, I want to know yeah. you only got 300 people. Like you, you should probably sit down and call every one of them or grab a couple of cup of coffee and socially distance with them and find out what they want out of this relationship instead of firing off, you know, an email once a month saying we got X, Y, Z going on. And it looks like it's over. Some people I think use email marketing and use technology as an excuse for not having the, 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 the time and resources allocated to like the human interaction. What's your take on that? You know, it's funny because when I, when I attend conferences or I listen to podcasts, a lot of marketers are asking for people to identify the pain points. And I'm sure you've heard about pain points. In my line of business, my pain points are actually very literal. Like I'm asking people, what are your pain points? Is it your shoulder? Is it your elbow? Is it your wrist? Is it your knee? Is it your hip? And so I've got this running database as I have conversations with people. Like, for example, I know that Linda's been having issues with her ankle. And I mm -hmm. know that Gary's been having issues with his hip. And I know that Sarah's been having issues with her shoulder. And for me, I'm constantly checking in with people saying, how do you feel? Do you feel that there's an improvement in your shoulder mobilization? Do you feel like there's a decrease in pain in terms of your hip mobility? And this, I think, can be supported by technology. There's a really interesting story in um, Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, and he has a concept called always be collecting the dots. And he would take little pieces of information from conversations that he had with customers in the restaurant. And he said that back in the you know, early 80s, they had these giant books. And he would keep meticulous notes about, you know, this person went to the University of Michigan. And in any time that person would make a subsequent reservation, he would always review his little notes from conversations yeah. that he had before. And he said it was one of the key indicators or one of the key points for their initial success. People were so unbelievably shocked that Danny would, rem would remember these things about that relationship that he had cultivated. Now, he said that technology, and this is a perfect example, technology now allows him to do everything that he was doing just much faster. So mm -hmm. now instead of writing it in hand uh, manually, they type it into a database, and then when the reservation is made subsequently, a little note with all of the information pops up. So again, we're talking about supplementary application of technology rather than the technology replacing the root essence or the DNA or the core of what it is to have a relationship with another human being. With you, 100%. All right, man, well, it, it's great to reconnect with you. Loved... Uh... Catching up, I'm glad you're uh, you've made it through the uh, the tail end here, and uh, only good things ahead. You want to leave here? I know you're uh, you like quotes like we do. So you got any uh, final quotes here you want to uh, infuse into our uh, Halo community? Absolutely. I mean, this has probably been my mantra 
for the entire pandemic. I mean, it was a quote that I loved before, but now it's taken on such deeper significance for me. And it's a quote by Arthur Ashe, the tennis great. And he said, start where you are, use what you have and do what you can. And I feel like this has been such a guiding principle for me because especially in this particular time where there is so much uncertainty and if anybody tells you that they got a handle on what's going on, I think they're full of shit. Everybody's dealing in some capacity with uncertainty. And so the best that we can do is be very, is really be vigilant about the things that we do have control over. And so taking stock every morning of where I am, what do I have at my disposal that I can use? Mm-hmm. And what are the things that I can do? I think is just, it's, it's a really powerful and simplest, it's a simplified way of being effective as you navigate uncertainty. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. All right, and, and uh, an ace or a winner down the line always helps a little, right? So swing, swing, for the, swing for the lines and the fences. All right, man, it was great to see you. I look forward to meeting you up in person when I get back to the city and uh, keep doing great things. Thank you, my friend. It's a true right, honor buddy. to talk to you. Take care. Awesome. Bye-bye. Thanks, Paul. Later. As we continue to build our Halo Talks email notification database, want to offer you a free $10 instant gift card from our friends at Promotion Vault. Also to show you how easy it is to offer your members and prospects and clients the ability to get desired actions out of them and reward them in real time, go to halotalks.com, put your email address into the pop-up box, see how it works, get a free $10 gift card from us, and uh, keep listening and making everybody great.